Our passage today is going to be from the Gospel of John. I've been working through the Gospel of John during the Lent season. Actually, I've been listening to all of his writings. Um, one of the things I gave up was listening to radio in the car to and from work, um, just trying to use that time to uh, spend time with God. So I've been listening to the Gospel of John. And I, I think the last time I preached may have been last July or sometime in the summer. It's been a little while, but I think I preached in the Gospel of John then, too. I think I preached John 1. Um, and I'd, I'd mentioned before, and I, I mentioned it again, that every time I come back to the Gospel of John, it's just refreshing for me because John gives a really neat perspective on what the relationship of Jesus with his Father is and what his relationship with his followers, with those who believe in him, is. And he gives a different insight than the other Gospels do. Um, the other Gospels have different focuses, um, but they're, they're, they're called the Synoptic Gospels, Gospels because they basically, all three of them, Mark, Matthew, and Luke have basically the same structure, are very similar, um, with much of the same wording that can be cross-matched between them. But the Gospel of John is very different. Um, and so we're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning. It's going to be John chapter 15. So if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, we're, gonna, we're not going to have anything on the screen today because I didn't have time to pre prepare, prepare anything for that. Um, but we are going to be in John chapter 15. Um, we're going to be starting in verse 1. So I'll give you a second to turn there. So John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have, made, I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of my Father in my name I may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Uh, let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word today, um, we ask that you move in and through your word to enlighten us and, and spur our hearts. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you uh, illuminate our eyes and our minds and our hearts to receive from you whatever you have for us. We pray for your conviction and your encouragement and your rebuke and your um, exhortation today, Lord. Whatever we need, we ask that you give us. We pray that we can come in humility before your word and receive from you whatever that is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the Gospel of John, there are seven major statements 
that John makes that reveal who he is to his disciples and to anyone else who would listen to him. These are called the I am statements. Um, in John chapter 6, verse 35, it says, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. In John chapter 8, 12, it says that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In John 10, 7, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come in before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In John 10, 11, and 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. In John eleven twenty five, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live if, even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And in this passage that we're in today, in John chapter 15, in verse 1, it says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So there are many other instances throughout the Gospel of John where Jesus uses the phrase, I am blank. Um, Jesus even goes so far as to say in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. In this instance, he uses a phrase that God uses of himself in the Old Testament. At the burning bush, when Moses is sent to rescue God's people, he asks who he should say sent him. In Exodus 3.14, it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. He uses his personal name, Yahweh. The interaction at the burning bush with Moses was the first time that God actually used his personal name with Israel. Moses was the great prophet of the Jewish people. And it was upon their writings that they, their whole faith was built. It was through God's revelation through Moses. So Jesus revealed himself in his life and his teaching particularly as articulated in the Gospel of John, as the great I am, the one who would display who the Father was to the world. Jesus himself was God incarnate, God come in the flesh, the Son of God, and he, as he proclaimed himself and as was proclaimed about him. Whereas Moses is representative of the old covenant, Jesus ushers in the new covenant. And John shows how it is different now that God has dwelt among us and how he dwells in us. Jesus is the revelation of the Father, as it says in John 14, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is the I am, and in him God is revealed to us. So what does Jesus reveal about himself in our passage today? So in verse 1, it says, I am the true vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine. So why does Jesus use this metaphor of a vine and a vine dresser? They lived in an agrarian society, so it might make sense that they use this because of the agriculture that they dealt with around them. Um, as many of you might know, in the Mediterranean climate, uh, the fruit of the vine is very productive. Um, you have grapes, olives, tomatoes, whatever that might look like. Um, so it makes sense that he would use this illustration for his disciples. Um, and I should say that this is a reason that he uses this illustration or this metaphor. But Jesus isn't coming up with something completely new. 
In fact, the reason Jesus uses the vine illustration is that he is revealing a new truth to an old metaphor that God has been using for centuries in regard to his people. So it is good to always remember that in the Bible, which was written hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago, people lived in a different culture and time. The principles and truth of scripture, they all transcend culture and society and traditions and anything else that you can list. And it's for all people in all places at all times. And it's always relevant for us, including today. However, in order to correctly understand, sometimes we have to understand the way it, the way they understood it. That's why we call this in biblical interpretation, looking at the cultural or historical context of it. And so sometimes this bears on our, our understanding and sometimes it does not. Sometimes we can read a passage and understand exactly what's being said. Um, but this is one of those instances where it will help us out a lot to look at it. So Jesus lived and taught in a time when their only Bible was the Old Testament. There was no New Testament revelation. Jesus actually was the revelation of the, of the New Testament. Um, so everything he taught and revealed was not a different religion from the Old Testament religion. right? It wasn't a different, he wasn't changing things, he was revealing things. Um, so he was a revelation and fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. Jesus was that. So most of what he says to his disciples in his discussions with them, most of what he says in his discussions with the religious leaders is actually commentary and revelation on the meaning of the Old Testament. So if you would like, let's turn to Psalm 80. Um, if you, you don't have to turn, you can listen, but, or you can write it down, but it's kind of long. So if you want to turn, we're going to go to Psalm 80. Um, in Psalm 80, Starting in verse 8, it says, You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow, the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges, so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O oh God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted on the sun, whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then, you shall not turn back from, then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. O Lord of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Uh, there's another passage I want to read in Isaiah 5, um, starting in verse 1. It says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine, and, made it, and built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. That he, then he expected it to produce good fruits, or good grapes but it produced only worthless ones. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done to it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now tell me, so let, now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break it down, down its walls and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will be pruned or hoed. But briars and thorns come up. I will also charge the clouds no rain on it. 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So in these two passages, as well as many other passages throughout the Old Testament, um, the nation of, Ill- of Israel is illustrated as a vine or a vineyard. In the psalm passage, it says, You removed the vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root. In the Isaiah passage, it says, My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug all around it, removed the stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. God had brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. He defeated the enemies before them and cleared the way to establish them as a nation. He gave them a foundation upon which they could live and thrive. They had every reason to produce good fruit. God gave them clear instructions on what that looked like. They were to meditate on the word of the Lord day and night and obey his commandments, and it would go well with them. But if they were to forsake the Lord, reject his commands, and go after other gods, they would be devoured by the nations around them. And sure enough, that is what we have seen happen to the nation of Israel in the Bible. So throughout Old Testament history, we just see this repetition of failure, repentance, God's graciousness and restoration, and then Israel's unfaithfulness. So in Isaiah 5, after the Lord had planted the vineyard, it says that he removed the hedge around them, he removed the protection around them, and he gave them over to the nations around them. And he did this because... For the, he did this because the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of, a cry of distress. So as I, I mentioned, there are many times the nation of Israel is illustrated in, refer, in reference to the vine. But when it, he makes these references to the vine or vineyard, it's always with a sense of their failure, their, lack, their lacking of producing good fruit. So it's with this idea in mind that Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. The comparison is clear. On one hand, you have the nation of Israel, led by the Jewish leaders, and on the other hand, you have Jesus, the true vine. In contrast to the nation of Israel, who continuously produced either bad fruit or no fruit at all, Jesus produces good fruit. There is a very clear new covenant teaching being taught here by Jesus, where Jesus is his fulfillment, this true, this true vine. Um, <clears throat> and he is the fulfillment and solution to the problem that these people had living under the, in, under the law, failing to meet the standard, as would be expected. This is the heart of the gospel message. The law was never meant to save anyone. It was only meant to reveal our need for a Savior and point us to him. So this makes sense that the, there would be this continual repetitive failure by the people. People are hopelessly weak and lost until they are lifted up by a Savior. And that's why we use the word Savior and salvation when we describe Jesus. Because we are in complete and utter dependence upon him. So it makes sense, therefore, why Jesus would say he is the true vine. He isn't a false or temporary vine. He isn't prone to apostasy. Jesus is the true, enduring, everlasting vine that the Father, who is the vine dresser, has planted. In his use of the word true, the description of the vine, there is a sense of Jesus being full and complete, and this 
life-giving source of nutrients. This lends to the description moving forward of how necessary it is for the branches to be connected to the vine. <clears throat> Excuse me. God's people had been represented by the Israelites, but they failed to produce the fruit in Jesus. There is this guarantee that he will produce fruit in the believers. Note how it says here that the Father is the vine dresser. And in verse 2, it says, every, bran every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. This, is a, this illustrates the relationship between the Father and the Son. <clears throat> in John 5.19, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus came to accomplish the Father's will. He willingly submits himself to the Father in everything. And the Father accomplishes his will through him in us and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, the Father glorifies the Son. So in verse 2, we introduce this concept that should be very troubling for us. Once it says that the Father is the one that produces the fruit in us, um, the second half of the verse says, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. Or, I'm sorry, at the beginning of verse 2, it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, there are some interpretations of this passage that kind of make this easier to take, right? Because it says, every branch in me that bears fruit, he takes away. In verse 6, further, it says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So there are a couple interpretations for this passage that kind of make it seem easier to swallow. Um, but I think the plainest and traditional interpretation of this passage really is the true one. For If we want to discuss the reasons why, I can let you know some other time. But um, essentially, there are good branches that bear fruit and abide in the vine. And there are bad, bad branches that do not, and they are thrown away. The ones that bear fruit are pruned so they can bear more fruit, and the ones that are taken away are burned. Now, the trouble arises from the fact that he says, every branch in me, right? So if, if we hear that, every branch in me, then our, our theological radar should be going off right now because if you are in Jesus, what does the Bible say about those who are in Jesus? No one can snatch them out of his hand. So how can someone who is in Jesus be taken away, gathered and burned? This is a depiction of finality, of final judgment and condemnation. So I think it would be helpful for us to look at another passage where Jesus is teaching on this same issue. Um, I'm going to turn to Matthew 13, starting in verse 3. It says, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell in the rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched and became, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. In verse 18, he says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word 
and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And when the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the world, it becomes unfruitful. The one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word, understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Basically, what you have here is an issue of whether or not someone truly believes. We see that there are examples of people who are part, seemingly a part of the family of God. They receive the gospel. It seems that they're agreeable. It seems that they understand it. It seems that they believe. And then eventually, for whatever reason, they walk away or apostatize. I'm sure you might know some people in your own life who have done this. I know I know some, and some of them were my close friends. But this isn't just a warning about other people who have done it. This is a warning for us. This is about you and me, and that's the scary part. Because if you think you are a branch that is connected to the vine, but you are not bearing fruit, then what does that mean? Are you actually connected to the vine? What does that say about you? The key here is that the branch that is truly connected will bear fruit. That is the mark of the believer. If we think back to the Matthew passage, it says some bore fruit a hundredfold or sixty or thirty. The point isn't how much fruit you bear or what that looks like. The point is that you will bear fruit. <clears throat> so the second, second part of this verse um, <clears throat> says that every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now, pruning is a process of cutting away dead leaves, um, certain parts of the plants that are, are unnecessary or take away from the production of the healthy, strongest part of the plant. This is this, you do this so that you can produce more fruit. Um, for instance, when Leslie and I started growing tomatoes, I didn't know what pruning was. I didn't know how important it was until I did it. Um, our plants were stronger, and they bore more fruit when they did, and it was better fruit. And so pruning is necessary in order to, produ to produce more and better fruit. God's pruning is often, or pruning in us is often discipline. In Hebrews chapter five or chapter twelve, starting in verse five, he says, "My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons." For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all of you become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had, an earth, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For, this discipline, for they disciplined us for a short time and as be, seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness." All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So what does discipline produce in the believer? It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And why does God discipline his children? He does it for our good so that we may share in his holiness. I know that Tim says this all the time, but God loves us too much to leave us where we are. This applies for our need for salvation, and it also applies for our need 
of discipline in God's sanctification in our lives, that we might become holier, more holier, and set apart from the sinfulness of the world, that we're made more into the image of Christ. Um, who is the true vine from which we're getting a fruit-bearing bearing life? Discipline in our lives really should not be a negative thing all the time. I mean, it's a negative thing when we, can, when we experience it at times, but it's not a negative thing because it comes from the Lord. If we desire to follow Christ and be more like him, if we really means everything to us, then we should be thankful to go through the refining process. <clears throat> we don't have to like or enjoy the process as it's happening, but we can be thankful for the Lord's care and the results of the process. So to, to be disciplined isn't necessarily always a punishment either. Also, in, although in many cases it is um, meant because we did something wrong, <clears throat> it is the process of being refined and conformed to something, right? When we say we practice discipline, we're training ourselves to be consistent and productive in some sense of our life. This is the same thing that the Lord does to us. He wants us to produce. Now notice that it says every branch is pruned, right? In verse 2 it says, he, pruned, he says every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Every Christian who has ever lived or ever will live is going to be continually pruned, whatever that may look like. This includes people you consider to be the most Christ-like in your life or the ones who have made it. Look at the Apostle Paul. We just got finished with Acts, right? Was he a mature Christian? Was he doing the will of God and bearing much fruit? Yes, he was. Probably more than most people we've ever seen. And the Lord continually put him in situations of trial and distress because it bore more fruit. <clears throat> so don't think that the discipline of the Lord is always something that is a result of something we've done bad, right? Sometimes God just says, I have something better for you. I have something planned for you that I want you to do, um, to perform. <clears throat> so we are never beyond the need of God's pruning. If the purpose of being pruned is so we will bear more fruit, then we will be pruned, regardless of how good we think we are doing. There are many Christians to this day who go under, undergo persecution and affliction and martyrdom so that in their suffering, others might come to Christ. This is something that we have seen throughout history in the church. Some of the most significant ways I have grown in my faith and have been encouraged is by seeing mature Christians in my life, many of them in an older stage of life, who have undergone immense suffering and pain and hurt well. In the midst, they are able to glorify God and praise him despite their circumstances. So I know that in my life, I am most connected to the Lord when he breaks me down and rids me of myself. That is the discipline of the Lord. <clears throat> and in case we have the temptation to grow complacent, this is a continual pruning. This is an active pruning. This is continually happening. This is not stopping. We don't reach a place of finality or comfort. So now that we know that pruning um, is meant to spur us on to bear more fruit, the question is, how are we able to bear fruit in the first place? So in, verses three, in verse 3, it says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, 
he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Now this word clean used here in verse 3 is actually in relationship to the word prune. It's the same word. It's the adjectival version of the verb. Um, When it's used in relation to plants, it's known as pruning. When it's used in relation to people, it's ceremonial cleaning or or being ceremonially clean or cleansed. Um, So it's it's interesting how Jesus uses that together. Um, Why does Jesus say that his disciples are clean? It's because of the word that Jesus has spoken to them. We will get into that a little bit later. Um, But we know that we are given life through the vine and through Jesus. And it's from and through his words that we gain understanding and are given depth of knowledge that leads to being a healthy, well-pruned branch that bears fruit. With that being said, the answer to our previous question, um, how are we able to bear fruit in the first place, is this. We must abide in Jesus and he in us. So what does that look like? What is Jesus referring to when he says abide? This word abide means to remain, to stay, to reside. This is a place of being. Yes, it has the eternal implications, such that if we don't abide, we will wither up, be thrown out, and burned. But it also has temporal implications of our ability to bear fruit and grow here and now. Our ability to live the Christian life and do what is right is directly related and directly determined by our connectedness with Jesus. In verse 5 it says, He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me he can do nothing. So what is this connectedness to Jesus and how do we nurture it? Well, the first thing we do is that we abide in the words of, of Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus is the source of God's revelation. So we abide in scripture as a whole, not just his own words. In verse 7 it says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So if we don't listen to what God has to tell us, how can we abide in Jesus? The word of God is living and active and moves in and through us. So how can we look like Jesus if we don't know what he does and what he says? And trust me, it's very easy to forget if you are not abiding in his word. A result of this is that our prayer life, if we're abiding in the word, the result is that our prayer life reflects whether or not we are abiding in the word of God. Because if we are truly aligned with the will of God, if he is truly changing us and revealing himself to us, our prayers will reflect his will. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Our Our desires become his desires when we are in his word, when we are receiving for him. For example, is it always the Lord's will that you're healthy and physically well? Earlier in the Gospel of John, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples, they asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this this man or his parents that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What a powerful concept this is. We often think of Pain and suffering is only a negative thing. I understand the bitterness of the physical world. So many of our prayers and desires reflect that, that we wish to be healthy and well. We pray this for the ones who we love, who we see suffering. But if we look at scripture, it is full of people in adverse circumstances who are used to bear much fruit. 
this really goes in line with the concept of pruning that we talked about earlier. Instead of praying that you be pulled out of a tight financial situation, would you be willing to pray that God would provide the bread on the table and help you be satisfied with what you have? In the midst of your strange situation, would you actually be able to be generous in that? And what if you have to lose your house because you lose a good job and have to settle for a lesser paying one? Rather than asking God to provide what you had before and to provide another house, would you instead be willing to thank God for what you have and thank God and look to the provision he has given you? What if you move into an apartment building with 10 new neighbors? Would you see that as an opportunity for God to bear fruit in your life instead of saying, I don't belong here. I had a house. So if you find yourself in a difficult physical condition, whatever that might look like, is your first prayer that God would give you joy and peace no matter what or improve your situation? Now, I'm not saying these things to discount praying for healing. Scripture says to pray for healing in faith. Rather, I want us to understand that as we abide in Christ, our ultimate desire is to bring glory to God just as Jesus brought glory to the Father. And if our prayer is always that, that we be glorified by God and produce fruit, that we glorify his name, sometimes it will mean that we go through stuff that we don't want to happen. So in verse, in verse 8, it says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The goal and result of abiding in Jesus is that we bear fruit in our lives, specifically in this case through prayer, and in doing so, we bring glory to God when we abide in him. And as I mentioned earlier, this fruit is proof that we are followers of Jesus. It's proof to ourselves and to the world around us. Now, John is going to further unpack what it looks like to abide in Jesus. In verse 8, we see a metaphor used. In the first verses, we see this metaphor used of the vine. In the following verses, Jesus continues to give more details of what this looks like. In verse 9, it says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that your joy may be in you, that your joy may be made full. <clears throat> in John, just in the previous chapter, in John chapter 14, in verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And later in verse 21, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by the Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So we don't often think of obedience in relation to love, right? I think I would most often think of obedience in relation to duty, right? Duty or submission to someone or something that, of authority. I think most often when we think of the word love, we think of something a little bit softer like kindness or gentleness or patience or forgiveness or tenderheartedness, something along those lines. However, there is a simple result of our love for God. Jesus submitted himself to the Father, and he was obedient to his will, even to the point of death. In doing so, he displayed his love for the Father. And in the same way, we display our love for Jesus by obeying him. How can you say you truly love someone if you disregard what they are saying when you know that they have something better and they know it and they know what's right for you and they have your best interests in mind? If Leslie were to point something out wrong in me 
or rebuke me in some way, in a way to sh- iron sharpening iron and not in a, in a prideful way. And I were to just totally ignore what she said and disregard that, would I be displaying my love towards her? Or would I be displaying pride and contempt and selfishness? In an infinitely grander scale, when we direct or reject God's direction in rebellion towards him, what does that say about what we think of him and how we view him? He is not our peer. So we can't even fully begin to understand. Um, we can't even begin to fully understand the magnitude of such a transgression. So if we love Jesus, we will be recipient to him in everything he says. Because we know that he knows best and he has what's best for us in mind. And he loves us. He first loved us. So the logical conclusion is that we cannot abide in his love if we do not obey his commandments. Those two things do not go together. Disobedience is not a chore either. When we understand and believe in the love Jesus has for us, and more so if we have experienced the benefits of that love in obedience to him, we understand this relationship produces joy in our lives. The more you experience the love of the Lord, the more you will experience his joy. And the more you experience his joy, the more you will understand his love. And this all begins with active and willing obedience to his commandments. That's how we are changed. So if you have been around CF for any length of time, there's a good chance you heard Tim say, love God, love people. And this isn't something Tim made up, but so this is something that he loves to say, and it's, it's really good, because what it essentially does is boil down what God has commanded us. This idea comes from passage in Mark chapter 12. Jesus said, The foremost is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. This idea is stated here in verse 12. In verse 12, it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So Jesus' commandment for us, right? If we keep the Lord's commandments, if we obey his commandments, we display our love for him. And his commandment is that you love one another. That boils down all the commandments in the Old Testament. That's the purpose of God giving us these commandments. The love of God in our lives is displayed in our love for each other. The commandments of God are all geared toward displaying this and practicing this in our lives. That is why in multiple cases, cases, Jesus sums up the commandments of God as love God and love people. Jesus, or love is sacrificing our pride and selfish interest for the sake of someone else. So Jesus continually displayed his humility and love by submitting himself to the Father. He, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he displayed that ultimately by going to the cross for our sake. Jesus didn't have to sacrifice sinful pride and selfishness, but he did humble himself. So the fruit that love that is produced in us through our abiding in the vine is love. Not the ethereal, ethereal, feel-good, warm, cozy feeling of love when you're in love with someone, but the active conscious decision to show people love that God desires us to show him and to obey his commandments, thus being able to show them love. So who does Jesus display his sacrificial love to? One verse 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things have been made known, or all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, you may be given. So friendship here isn't to be understood in this mutual, equal friendship between peers, but rather it's a show of position of favor that one would have with someone who is greater than them. So we are friends with God because he has shown us favor by his grace and love and salvation, not because we're his buddy. God's favor shines upon the believer, and because the believer understands this, that he is the infinite holy God of existence, we display our love for God by willingly obeying him. Whereas a slave is subject regardless of what they think, what they desire, which all people are subject to God, and they will, whether they acknowledge it or not. The friend has an intimate understanding of the why and how, and a willingness to submit themselves. There is a different heart. And in just in case anyone might be prone to being puffed up, Jesus throws in verse 16, I shouldn't say throws it in because it kind of wraps everything up. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of my Father, of, of the Father in my name, I may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. So we might be tempted to look around us and get puffed up with pride, but in self righteousness. And I know that I struggle with self righteousness. I've been in the church my whole life. I got saved at a young age. It's, it's easy to fall into that temptation. And I know in conversations with some of you that you have gone through the same thing and can struggle with that as well. But Jesus says, I, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. It begins with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. Jesus chose the disciples that they would bear fruit in their lives and that fruit would be have a lasting impact. It would remain the prayers asked in Jesus' name would be answered. Jesus didn't draw us to himself to set us up for failure. If there is one thing to take away from this passage, it is this. God has chosen us and grafted us into the vine, true vine, so that we could bear fruit to the glory of God. God has chosen us and grafted us into the true vine so that we could bear fruit to the glory of God. There's a reason. We're not just meant to sit on our hands and wait for heaven. If you truly belong to Christ, then the question isn't if you will bear fruit, but how much fruit will you bear? So what are some implications for us because of this? Well, the first is, are you abiding in Jesus? That's the first one, right? Obedience in your life to his word will demonstrate this. Do you actually show your love for God in your life, or is there no evidence whatsoever? If you are not abiding in Jesus, have you met him then, right? It says, Maybe this is the day you get saved. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things pass away, and behold, new things have come. There will be a change. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. So have you accepted the death, resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? And if you are abiding in Jesus, how has he been pruning you lately? Have you seen that? Maybe things that, these are things that you th- should think more of and deal with deeper. And do you see pruning, any pruning that needs to be t- taking place in you? Do you see any places in your life that you need to give up, that you need to work on? 
And remember that the work is always done by the Lord. We need to lean into him and trust him. Know that if you're living in obedience to God, if you are loving people, if you have the joy of the Lord and your desires reflect his will, have encouragement and take solace in the joy that he has for you, knowing that you are abiding in him and being encouraged by that. This passage is a warning for all of us, but it's also an encouragement for us, knowing that he is the one that produces that fruit in us. We need to go to him. Jesus is the true vine, and he is the source of life. As we saw earlier, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Right? No one can come to the Father but through him. So we do not have this life unless we are in him. So with that, let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we come before you this morning knowing that you are the true source of life. You are the reason for existence. You are the creator of the universe. You hold all things together. And you have created us to have a relationship with you and to abide in you. And because of sin, we could not do that. We can't do that. Sin has broken that relationship with you. And so we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We just pray that, Jesus, you would change our hearts and align our hearts with your will. We pray that if there's anyone here today who does not know you, who doesn't have a changed heart, that they would understand that you died on the cross for their sins and you love them deeply and you wish to abide with them and abide in them. And I pray for those of us who know you, Lord, that um, we would take seriously your commandments and not disregard them as an optional thing, knowing that to have true life and to bear fruit and to bear much fruit and to bear more fruit as you desire us to do, Lord, we only receive that from you and by abiding in you. So we, I pray for those of us who feel useless, who feel like we haven't been doing this, who know that we haven't been doing this, Lord, that you would encourage us and provoke us to go to your word, to go to prayer, to understand what you have said and who you are, and to align our wills with you. We pray this all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.